We are doing a series as a church at the moment, which we started last week after a mammoth series on the book of Colossians. The new series we started is a series called Restoring Faith, where we want to talk about the heart of what it means to be a Christian. There are so many things that we can use to describe the heart of who God is and what God does. So we talk about the gospel, we talk about grace. But if you talk about what is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, it is the word faith. Faith is our response to who God is and what God has done. And in fact, faith is actually what fuels the entire Christian life. And so the reason why we commit our children to the Lord is because of faith, our trust in God. The reason why we gather to worship is because of our faith in God. The reason why we pray is because we trust a God who is able and who is willing. The reason why we give and the reason why we work and the reason why we sacrifice and the reason why we live our lives for Jesus is because of our faith. Now, last week I gave us a couple of reasons as to why I believe this series is so important. And I am feeling so strongly how important the series is. And I know you're like Stephen, we've heard that before. And the truth is I feel that about every sermon and every series that we preach up here. But here's some more reasons as to why I believe a series on faith is so important. For those of you who have been around more than a few years, if you look around you and you try and take the spiritual temperature of the world around you, you would agree with me that things are changing. In fact, things have already changed. It wasn't too long ago that you could assume that most people you knew at some level considered themselves a Christian. If you ask them why, they'd give you things like, well, you know, my, my mom brought me to church and my grand read stories to me. I kind of know the Lord's Prayer. I can know a few of the Ten Commandments and it makes me a Christian. All right, it wasn't too long ago that our society, we had a bit of a shared moral sense. We had shared values. And I don't know if you noticed, but that is changing. If you go to the mall, go to the sports grounds, you go to your workplace, you go to your families, you go to academic institutions, and you'll very quickly realize that it is very hard to find a Christian. It's kind of like, where's Waldo? Well, where's the Christians around us? And so what actually is going on here? I was reading an article this last week that was trying to argue by looking at some of the research out there that inherited faith is dying, but chosen faith is not. And what that is basically saying is for those who grew up in a Christian household and, and very uh, conveniently adopted this label Christian and uh, again, know a few of the Ten Commandments. I'm a good person. I used to go to church a few times. I still try and go Christmas and Easter. Those kinds of people, when they realize that that kind of faith is disposable, that kind of faith is inconvenient, that kind of faith is very weak, they very quickly give that up. Whereas those who engage the reality of who Jesus is, the reality of his life, death and resurrection, what his life, death and and resurrection means, both for this world and for the next, after wrestling with those truths and coming to know Jesus as Savior, those numbers of people are statistically growing. Timothy Keller, pastor in New York, he also tries to argue, we're using slightly different terms, by pointing to very similar research. He would say, listen, there is no doubt, atheism is on the rise. 
often due to some of guys like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, very intelligent people pointing towards science, trying to poke holes in some of our faith systems. And again, for those of us who maybe have a very weak faith system, it's gonna look like, well, I need to give this up for atheism. That is most definitely happening. But genuine Historic Christianity, meaning those who adhere to the reality of who Jesus is, His word, His power, His life, His death, His resurrection, those are also growing. So atheism is growing and and genuine Christianity is growing. What's changing? It's the middle. The middle for whom? Well, we just go to church. And then suddenly you realize there are better things to do on a Sunday morning. All right, there are better things to do on a Wednesday evening. There are actually different ways that we can engage this world and satisfy our appetites. And so I'm going to throw off this burden called Christianity. And so when I talk about the importance of a series called Restoring Faith, this is not just a lucky little series. You know, high five. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for the preach. Now, I love the encouragement and I love the support. But I don't think I'm overstating things when I'm saying, guys, we're talking about the future of our faith. We're talking about the future of our faith in the next generation. We're talking about the future of faith in Johannesburg, in our country. And for that reason, as we put deeper roots into what we know to be true, instead of believing the lie that faith is somehow anti-intellectual, this is blind faith, this, this leap of faith into the abyss of the unknown. Rather, we become convinced of the truth of who Jesus is. This is what last week was about. We transition to a place where we actually put our personal trust and faith in Him. Guys, that matters more than you would ever, ever believe. It's not just about what we do on a Sunday. It influences everything about us. And so what I'm going to try and do this morning is the impossible. And some of you are going to be like, yeah, Steve, give us a new one. Uh, I'm going to try to teach through an entire chapter of the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bible here, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews. If you start at the back of the Bible, just page back and you'll find the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And if you look at chapter 11, you are doing the maths and you're realizing this is a long chapter. If we go Stephen's normal pace, I might be home by three o'clock tomorrow afternoon. All right, but I'm really going to try and bring us well through this chapter. We're actually not going to read the entire chapter. We don't have time for that. All right, but here's my challenge to every single one of you, whether you're here now or whether you're listening online, is that you take this chapter, you, you take what God is saying to you, some of the insights you glean from this morning, and you go home and you read this chapter every day for the next week. And don't just read it. God is not giving you a gold sticker for your reading plan. All right, read it to understand. Read it to know God, read it to see God. So that is my challenge for you. But we are going to just pull out some of the key teachings of this chapter. Before we read, I want to give you a brief overview of how the chapter works. Verse one of this chapter is a definition of faith. Then we move into a whole stack of examples of people who lived out this faith in the Bible narratives. And then it shows us some common characteristics that all of these people had. All right, so we've got a definition. Then we move on to what many people have called the Hebrews Hall of Fame. Uh, when I was in PE, I went to one of these old historic schools, Grey High. And I don't know if you've been into one of these old schools. You go into the lobby and there are all these old black and white photographs. Now, the reason why those photos are still up there is because there's a sense that these are the kinds of people who embody the heart and the soul of this school. 
But the subtext, the subtext is, don't just remember those guys. Be what they were in your generation. Live out the heart, soul, and values of the school now, inspired by their lives. And the Hebrews Hall of Fame is doing the same thing. Let's look at their faith. And, and instead of going, oh, wow, look what Moses did. No, the challenge is that you and I live out the same faith in this generation. And then as we look at those common characteristics, I think every single one of us will be grown in this. So Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to read verse 1. We're going to talk about it and then go on from there. Here's the definition according to this chapter. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Can you see the definition? Now faith is dot, dot, all right? Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now some of you have that definition memorized. Some of you have a t-shirt, a bumper sticker. Some of you have a little picture of a sunset with these words on your phone and you share it to your friends in times of need and you put it on social media. Now, some of you maybe like that verse as you, as you read it. I have to admit with you, at first, I didn't like that verse. And you're like, Stephen, what's going on? Well, let me explain. If we take this verse and rip it out, just put those words on a screen and close the rest of the Bible. I was looking at those words. I had a bit of a crisis because I'm looking at those words going, Lord, what do those words mean? And as I tried to understand what those words mean, I didn't like what they seemed to mean. All right, because somehow it seemed to be in conflict with many other things I'd come to learn about God and how faith works from his scriptures. But then I looked at these verses because at first blush, what do these verses seem to say? At first blush, it seems to say faith is being sure, so there's this inner certainty, being sure of what we hope for. Oh, okay, so what do I hope for? I hope for you know, a holiday and I hope for a big income and I hope for a wife and I hope for some kids and I hope, okay, so, but now I need to generate an internal surety. I need to generate the sense of, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. Things I hope for and I must believe it inwardly. No evidence, no certain, but the inward certainty, Right? And in case we miss part A of the verse, and it's, um, it's a certainty of what we cannot see. So I cannot see my future wife. I cannot see my future husband. I cannot see my future kids. I cannot see the short-term job. I cannot see the things that I want. But inwardly, I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. So what this verse on its own seemed to be saying to me, which is why I didn't like it. Some of you do like it. Is that it's like faith is, oh, things I hope for, things I can't see, but inwardly I almost need to believe that they are already there. Some of you are like, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah. That's exactly what I believe faith to be. But I didn't like those conclusions. But being a good Christian and being a good Bible reader, I said to myself, Lord, if, if I'm wrong, I need to adjust my thinking to your thinking. So if somehow I've missed the boat, I need to give that up as much as I enjoyed my boat and I need to jump into your boat. Then I felt the Lord say, Stephen, you've got an entire chapter on faith here. You want to know what that verse means? Read the rest of the chapter and let the rest of the chapter inform the definition of verse one. You with me? All right, so I proceeded to do that. And what I want to share with you are some of the things that I learned along the way. That faith is not some sort of positive actualization inside of me. Faith feelings, faith mojo, faith juice. But it is anything but that, in fact. So what 
we start to see in this verse, and, and we saw this last week as well, is that faith starts somewhere. And to help us understand that, I want to look at verse 11. When I look at verse 11, read it and make a few comments. This is one of the Hall of Fame guys. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself barren, was enabled to become a father. Now, some of your translations make Sarah the object of the sentence. Welcome to Bible Translation 101. It's not always clear in the original language what the object and the subject are. Nonetheless, Abraham or Sarah or Abraham and Sarah, all right? They were enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. So here's where faith started for Abraham and Sarah. They considered something that was true about God. They stopped. They thought. They evaluated. Were they just going on a feeling? No. Were they just going and looking at their circumstances? No. Their circumstances were actually evidence that they should never have a child. They were well over 100 by this stage. In fact, they were about 100 actually. But there was an actual promise. So did they come up? Did they manufacture something they hoped for? Did they manufacture something that was not seen? No, God gave them a promise for them to hope in, something that was at this stage unseen, all right? And based on God's past faithfulness to them, they believed. This wasn't wishful thinking. This was careful evaluation of God's character, and of God's power and God's faithfulness. Now, if we move on and we go to the same story a bit later on in the story, verse 17 to 19, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac, the son, that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So what's going on here? God comes to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and says, you're gonna have a son. And through your son, I'm gonna, you're gonna have millions and millions of heirs. And through that nation, the whole world will be blessed. At, again, beginning stages, they were barren. They were well over a hundred, but they chose to trust God. And after a bit of a false start with another story, Hagar and Ishmael, we won't go there. Eventually, Abraham and Sarah was given a son, Isaac, a miraculous son of promise. In other words, wow, God is faithful. We were right to put our trust in him. That, by the way, took 25 years. But anyway, we were right to put our trust and our faith in him. Now we have a son, which means we can have heirs, which means they can multiply, which means we can suddenly see God's promises coming true and a generation that could bless the world. And then God says, so this son that I've given you, I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, just see the logic. Hey guys, I'm gonna give you a son called Isaac and it is through Isaac, you're gonna have millions of heirs that will become a blessing to the entire world. Oh, but that son Isaac that I gave you, your one and only miraculous son, give him back to me. So here Abraham is left with an apparent contradiction. What do I do with this? Lord, I thought that your promise was through the son, but you want me to give him up to you. That doesn't make sense. 
Now, what do you and I tend to do in similar situations where we apply our minds as we know how to? We look at what God says, we do the math and we conclude, but Lord, that doesn't make sense. In those moments, who do you and I on average tend to trust? Our thinking or God's promises? Right? Our thinking. So here's what Abraham did. It says he reasoned. So he looked at the apparent contradiction. He looked at God's faithfulness, that God had actually provided this child, God's promises, his character. And he says, well, clearly, somehow God is still going to fulfill his promises through Isaac. But on the other hand, God's asking me to give Isaac up. So, you know what God can do? God can actually raise Isaac up from the dead. Now, we know he never got to that point, which is why these verses say that figuratively Abraham actually did get Isaac back from the dead. But that is what faith looked like. And so faith definitely, for many of these characters, starts with not blind faith, not conjuring up some crazy idea, but what comes up is an evaluation of who God is and his faithfulness and his commitment to us and his reliability to his word and to fulfill his promises. And based on that thought and careful evaluation of who God is, they went to the next step. Now, if you've ever read this chapter, something you will know about the chapter, and we're going to have a, take a quick look at some of these other characters, is Hebrews 11, about a whole bunch of people who got around with a cup of coffee and started debating you know, ontology and epistemology and the nature of truth, and then went home and their lives were unchanged. No, it definitely started with thinking. It definitely started with reasoning. It definitely started with an evaluation of who God was and that kind of kicked them into the next phase. But I want to look at a number of these other characters and you're going to start seeing what faith actually has to become. So in verse four, by faith, Abel offered, this is an act, he offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Lived a life that pleased God. Verse seven, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Verse eight, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went. Verse 24. I'm skipping a whole bunch of kind of intermediate characters here. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have, not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, and so on and so on and so on. What stands out about these people? Bunch of people who just sit around thinking about things? No, these were people whose faith looked like radical obedience. Radical obedience. So as we look at that, 
we realized that these people were not kind of motivated by some sort of internal faith mojo, some sort of internal, I need to make myself believe, make myself believe, make myself believe. Rather that they evaluated the truth of who God was, God called them to something, and in faith they acted and obeyed. Most of these stories did not end out well, right? Their faith did not make sense, in fact, in light of their circumstances. The only way their faith did make sense was if what God said was true. And they chose to believe that what God said was true. And for that reason, they acted in this radical act of obedience. Let me ask you something else about these stories. Some of them you may know, even if you're not a believer. And we're so glad you're here. Uh, I mean, you've probably heard of some of these stories or seen some of the movies, like Prince of Egypt, for example. All right, here's a big question for you guys. Who initiated the big act of faith. Here's what I mean by that. Did Abraham, chilling around in the city of Ur, did he go, oh, oh, just heard a great sermon, Riverside Community Church. I am so pumped, man. After that worship, I am so excited. I wanna do such big things from God. Hey, Sarah, let's leave everything we know. Let's just go out there in the name of Jesus and see what God does. Did Noah go, yeah, you know what? This world needs a big boat. Right, and we're going to build a big boat and we're going to crowdfund it and we're going to get funding from the church and in the name of Jesus, we're going to save the whole world. But the Israelites, they're kind of coming to the end of their journey in the land, see the city of Jericho, this big scary Canaanite, this big scary walled city and decide, you know what's going to show that we've got awesome faith? We're going to put our swords and our spears away. Guys, I've got a great idea. Let's just walk around the city seven times play some trumpets and sing some songs and see what God does, right? Is that what happened? No, in every single case, God comes in. He says to Abraham, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. Noah, here's what I want you to do. Israelites, here is how I'm gonna bring you the victory over Jericho. And so the act of faith was not coming psyched up from a sermon or an awesome worship service and feeling so positive inside and doing some crazy idea in the name of Jesus. In every single one of these stories, read the chapter for yourself. It was God calling them to do something, something that admittedly on the surface did not make sense, but they chose to trust God based on who He was, His character, and their faith was a radical step of obedience. So knowing that, let's go back to verse one. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for. Was that like, ah, oh, I really hope for, you know, a Ferrari and all these, no. I, I hope for a child. Why do I hope for a child? Because God told me he's gonna give me one. I hope that God's gonna save the world through what I'm doing here. How do I know? Because God said he's gonna do that through this boat. I really hope those walls fall. Why do we hope those walls fall? Because God said he's gonna do it. And then we've got the certainty of what we do not see. Man, walking around the wall. Did anything happen? No, nothing. Day two, anything happened yet? No, nothing. Day six, and guys today, no, nothing. Day seven, it's like, seriously, what are we doing here? Because if this goes wrong, we're dead. All right, okay, count of three. Blow the trumpets. And God did his thing. Can you see how understanding how God worked in the lives of all of these people brought about a radical obedience to faith. And so here's the thing that we learn from these people 
is that God does not evaluate your faith by your feelings, but by your obedience. God does not evaluate your faith by your feelings, but by your obedience. And that's going to start somewhere. You want to grow in faith? I'm sure most of you who consider yourselves Christians here this morning do want to be used by God in great ways. So you want to grow your faith. I can tell you now that one of the best ways to grow your faith is by starting to obey God in the small things. Start to live the life of obedience. And even in the small things, it's actually an act of faith. Think about some of the small things God causes people to do. And we are left with an option to trust my own feelings on the issue, culture's feelings on the issue, or God's feelings on the issue. Think about sexuality, where God says, hey, it is by my design that sex is between a man and a woman in the confines and safety of a marriage. That is what is best for marriage. That is what is best for families. That is what is best for safety of future generations. Often we're like, seriously? God? How can something that feels so good be so bad, right? The world looks on and says, but that's so dumb. That's so stupid. Do you think animals restrict themselves in those ways? And we're animals, so why don't we just follow suits? So by choosing to obey God in that way, it's an act of faith. God, I, I trust what you say about these things. Think about the generosity God calls Christians to do. I want you guys to intentionally limit your maximum profit in your lives. I don't want you to hoard up everything for yourself. I don't want you to invest everything offshore. I don't want you to make sure that you have the biggest savings in the world. In fact, I want you to take a large portion of what I give you and give it back to me and my work and my ministry enabling what I am doing in this world. Will's like, what? That's so dumb. Some of you are like, you know what I could do with that 10%? I'm like, you know what I could do with that 10%? But we choose to obey God and His Word and what He does with what we give back to Him. Think about what God calls us to do as we're celebrating membership and baptism today, that God calls us to do some things that maybe don't always make sense to us. Give up a perfectly good Sunday morning. Go and gather with other believers in their homes and, and talk about God's word and pray for one another. Find ways to serve and support one another uh, financially with your time and with your energy. Serve people on a Sunday. Serve the church. Learn to love the world. Learn to love and even bless those who persecute you. That makes no sense to anybody. But as an act of faith, we choose to obey, Right? And so we become faithful by obeying God in the small, clear things. And that positions us for hearing God on the big things. And as we develop a track record of hearing God's voice and obeying by faith, so man, when those moments come when God does call us, Jared is in Nepal right now. Jared, I wanted to go to Nepal and I wanted to preach the gospel to Tibetan Buddhists. I can tell you now, he could only discern that call because of a life of obedience. Because of a life of hearing God's voice and obeying in the small things. The book of Romans chapter one talks about obedience that comes from faith. Now we've got young kids, some of you have or had young kids and you know that sometimes it's like, boy, shake hands. It's like fat bottom lipped, sullen obedience. 
Now, the way the scriptures describe obedience is obedience that comes from faith, meaning because I trust God, I trust his word, I trust his character, I choose from that place to obey. Now, there's one more thing that I believe that this chapter is wanting to teach us. And I'm going to be quite frank with you and say this is, next part is going to be very hard for me to say. But I also know that it's going to be very hard for some of you to hear. Because as hard as it is to hear, it is because you are in a very hard place. And because you're in this very hard place, you are asking yourself very hard questions about God and His faithfulness and His commitments to you. And if you've been around Riverside for any period of time, you know that I will leave no stone unturned to get to the heart of what God wants to encourage us with in all times. One thing you know you'll get from me is not all the happy, your blessings around the corner. And, and guys, I pray that God does bless us in so many abundant ways. But we know that the reality of life doesn't always meet those expectations Instead of giving up on God or thinking he's given up on us, I believe that as we dig deep into his character and to his word, there are incredible resources for how he meets us in our difficult times. And so I wanna read the last two verses of Hebrews 11, verses 39 to 40. After going through dozens of names and just indicating there are so many more people whose names weren't even mentioned here. It says here, these were all commended for their faith. Here's the hard part. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Think about John the Baptist. Think about the prophets. Think about Moses. We think about Abraham. We think about the people mentioned in this chapter let me ask you a question. Did they get their best life now? Did everything work out so nicely in the end? All right, did they get their Disney conclusion? All right, did they ride off into the sunset? Did they find that their bank accounts miraculously just were overflowing with money and blessings? Because there are certain circles where we are led to believe that if you have faith, all of that stuff will automatically come true. Find me one person in chapter 11 where that came true. Now, I'm not saying that all of our lives are doomed. All I'm saying is, how do we think about God's faithfulness to us and therefore my faith in Him in dark seasons that seem to stay dark seasons? Part of me wishes I could stand up here and give you 10 steps to a successful life of faith. That if you just followed the formula, you'd be living this comfortable, wealthy life but I can't. So here's a question I want to answer. And this is me getting as real and as raw as possible. The question I want to ask and answer is this. If my faith doesn't guarantee that everything will work out in the end, I don't mean the ultimate end, I mean like next year, the end, or at least 10 years, the end. If my faith doesn't guarantee that everything will eventually work out in the end, what's it all for? For what reason would I hold on to this faith in Jesus if I don't have those kinds of guarantees? 
And I know this, that's a real question. That's a, a painful question. And if it's not painful for you now, a time will most likely come in your life where you will be faced with those questions. So I wanna read Hebrews 11, same chapter, verse 13. Again, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. These faith heroes from their hall of fame of faith, whose names are forever in Scripture, whose lives are there to teach us and inspire us what faithful living truly is. Giants of the faith, they did not receive in their lifetime what had been promised. Let that sink in for a while. Before you get depressed, all right, I want to show you what I think is going on here. And for some reason, being a good old South African boy, the only metaphor that came to mind was the metaphor of American football. And the problem is I know next to nothing about American football. But as I did some research, here's what I know. I'm going to read this to make sure I get this right. Is that the offensive team has four downs or four plays to either score or move the ball forward 10 yards. Don't ask me anything else about American football. But here's the point. Is that each down or each play doesn't guarantee you're going to go over the line. Every time the team gets the ball doesn't guarantee they're going to go over the line. But here's what they know. That play by play, down by down, they are moving the ball towards the goal. And that is what happened in every single one of these heroes of the faith. God gave them the ball. And maybe in their lifetime, they never crossed the try line. But they moved the ball forward. And they gave the ball to the next generation who moved the ball forward. And they gave the ball to the next generation who moved the ball forward. And then the, gen- the ball was handed to my grandparents. And then the ball was handed to my parents' generation. And now the ball is handed to this generation. And we, by faith, are going to be moving the ball forward. Here's the thing that makes it different to American football. We don't have to be left guessing. Well, who's going to win? Well, at the moment, it looks like the opposite team's winning. Oh no, what are we gonna do? Because of the victory of Jesus on the cross, we are guaranteed victory. Now we can look at the circumstances around us and go, but it doesn't look like it. I don't care what it looks like. God has said, I have guaranteed that ball will cross the line. Now obey in faith. And what's gonna happen is we're gonna move the ball forward, pass it to the next generation, the next generation. We're gonna prepare them by living robust lives of radical faith and so on and so forth. And the time will come when the ball crosses the line. And we're gonna turn around and it's not just gonna be me and Bianca and Craig and elders and people who are on TV. We're gonna be high-fiving each other. We cross the line. and Oh, Moses, you're here too. High-five, buddy. Thank you so much for what you did. Right? That is what Hebrews 11 is saying. They saw the bigger picture and were prepared to do what it took in their generation to move the ball forward. And the last verse of the chapter says that together with us, we will see the ultimate outcome of all of our faith. Amen. So if you become of anything, if you become convinced of anything today, 
Faith is not the mechanism you use to get the life you really want. Faith is the mechanism God uses to lead you to the life He wants for you. And this gets us to the heart of faith. Do I trust my understanding, my evaluation? Do I trust culture or do I trust God with everything? Right? So as we read through and as you're going to be doing for the next few days, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Moses, by faith, Stephen Pullman, What is going to be said about me? The question is this. How are you and I going to be part of this cloud of witnesses? What does radical obedience look like for you and me? Oh, and by the way, by faith, Riverside Community Church. Hey, we can look around us and say, hey, listen, all we really want is our land next door. And God says, what? Don't you trust my promises? Don't you trust what I'm actually doing in you? Don't you trust how I'm actually making you into a church? And hey man, you might look out there and things might not look as you wanted them to be. You may even look at some apparent contradictions and we're gonna be faced with a choice. Who are we gonna ultimately trust? And I wanna invite you to trust God with me. And we're gonna live lives of radical obedience now. But what does it mean for you? Let me give you a handful of ideas and then we'll conclude. I think for some of you, we alluded to this earlier. It means to, by faith, not out of compulsion, by faith, to start living lives of obedience in the small things. Start trusting God in the small things. Knowing that somehow in the small things, you're exhibiting faith. You're trusting God. And you're setting yourself up for being available for some of the bigger things. So for some of us, that's what it means. For others, maybe you're sitting here and you are struggling with a sin that you've never been able to get rid of. Now, one of the many things that needs to happen in your life, your act of faith will be actually believing, not just saying, yes, Lord, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah, but actually believing that what God wants for you is better than what he wants from you. You see, what is sin ultimately? Sin is in the moment, I believe that this is better than what God has for me, right? And I start to become convinced that by saying no to this, I'm saying yes to something better. And even if I don't see it right now, I'm trusting God that somehow this act of obedience is moving the ball forward in my life. Maybe it's not present sin. Maybe it's past sin. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you are so ashamed by some of the things in your life. Some of your pasts, some of your hangups, other things done to you or things. And you sit there and Sunday after Sunday, you feel inadequate. You feel unworthy of God's love. And faith is for you beginning to actually believe that you are forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you have done. Grace always outweighs sin. And that your sin has been paid for in full by Jesus. In full. There is no punishment awaiting you because of the cross. And Jesus takes his life and he takes his righteousness and he gives it to you 
That's what faith looks like for some of you. Maybe you sit here with other sense of just identity issues and inadequacies and lack of confidence. And faith isn't looking at yourself in the mirror all day saying, I can, I can, I can, I can. Faith is believing that what God says is true of you is actually true. Doesn't matter what your conscience says, doesn't matter what other people around you say, doesn't matter what the world says, doesn't matter what the devil himself says. But God says, you are a son whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. You are my daughter. You are a princess in the kingdom. You are a co-heir of my son, Jesus Christ, shoulder to shoulder with him. You get to inherit everything he earned. This is who you are. You are loved. There's nothing you can do to make me love you less. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more. And faith is beginning to believe that. Maybe you're going through a trial. And for some of you, faith means beginning to understand that what God is doing in you in the trial is greater than what he would be doing in you outside of the trial. That's why the book of James says, count a pure joy, my brothers, when you face these trials of many kind. Faith is developing perseverance and maturity. Maybe some of you, you're not facing a trial. You're facing devastation. You're, tracing, you're facing tragedy. You're facing loss. You're asking such painful questions because of the things you've seen and the things you've endured. And you have all sorts of questions. God, how could you allow dot, dot, dot to happen in my life? What are you doing? Faith is... You see again, some of these guys died without getting the answers, without seeing the ball cross the line. What does faith look like for you who faced a devastating loss? Faith means believing that in the age to come, what God gives us outweighs what we have lost in this world infinitely. Infinitely. And that when we experience the life and and the tears and the sorrows are gone, that those will be a distant memory. Apostle Paul talks about childbirth. Some of you have experienced that or have at least been part, you know, your, your, your wife was experiencing that. Every single one of us, our mothers experienced that. And Paul says, as much as childbirth is so painful, analogous with the pain of this life, there comes a time where there is new life and suddenly those pains are forgotten, right? And suddenly the joy of new life and the joy of, of nurturing this new life somehow makes all of that worth it. So faith for some of us who've experienced such tragedy means trusting in a God who has that planned for you. And in this life, a God who can heal, a God who can restore and who is willing and who is able. And can you see how it starts with our minds? But it transitions to obedience. So I want to pray for us this morning. I want to pray that God grows our faith and maybe there is something brewing in your heart. But I also want us to walk away considering these things, reasoning the evaluation of who God is and then choosing to obey in faith. And so Father, we thank you that the point of our faith is you. Where we fix our eyes is on you and your reliability and your faithfulness, your word, your promises. 
And Father, I pray that right now, around the room, your spirit is bringing to mind those promises. Those moments in your word that you're calling us, maybe even stretching us to actually say, yes, Lord, I believe that is true. As an act of faith, I choose to believe that about me. I choose to believe that about you. I pray, Lord, for those of us who maybe feel like we're in the onslaught of faith. Maybe we're being faced with doubts. Maybe we've been faced with difficulties. Maybe we've been faced with a season where you've just seemed distant to us. And Holy Spirit, right now, I pray that you would speak truth. Truth that comes from your heart, your character, your word, correcting our understanding. I pray it won't just stop in the mind. I pray that we would experience that flood of comfort and love that comes from your tangible presence. Father, don't leave us there. God, I pray that for every single one of us, you are calling us to steps of obedience. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you're showing every one of us what those steps of obedience look like so that we can wake up tomorrow with faith. And God, I pray lastly that this would be a joy for us, even in spite of difficulty. As we know you and as we taste and see that the Lord is good, I pray that would be part of our experience of the growth of our faith. I thank you for those today who are taking a step of faith by being baptized. We thank you for what you have nurtured in their lives and how they are trusting you in this. May that be a celebration for them and for us. So God, will you continue to speak to us during the course of this week? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.